Good morning, Headwaters. Nice to be with you. Good to see all of you today. Um, he really is a good and gracious king, and I hope you uh, know that for sure. Um, back in the day when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, I went to college, and we had political science class, and uh, what, what is the best form of government was the question, and the best form of government was a benevolent dictator, and that's our God, a good and gracious king. And uh, that's a good thing. Uh, I, uh, before we dive into the Bible, I have a couple of uh, just personal things. So if you're a guest today, forgive me. These are a couple church family matters. And then I want to make a statement about Israel. Um, first, uh, last Sunday at this time, our son Caleb uh, was uh, in, on a surgical table, uh, having his uh, lung cut open and it had uh, four different pockets of nasty stuff that's that that was the technical medical term it's called necrotic pneumonia Uh, the pneumonia was actually attacking the lung and killing lung tissue and the only way to get rid of it was to surgically remove it thank you for praying for him he went home on friday Uh, i'm sure he's napping in his chair as we see this morning uh, because he listened to me first hour and and that helps a lot of people catch up on their sleep so I, I'm ministering to my own son. Uh, number two, uh, and again, f- forgive me for having to bring my family up uh, this Tuesday because we got our son through surgery. I'm having surgery. And it's only a partial lobotomy, but I'm expecting it to take care of most of my problems. Um, it, it Actually, I'm having a knee replacement. And uh, I apologize. I'm going to be on the shelf for a little while while I learn to walk again. So that's a Tuesday morning before y'all get up. Actually, these people already have had lunch by then. But uh, um, yeah, early in the morning. So I wanted to tell you that I won't be here for a little while. Uh, I'm not deserting you. I've not left you. I will miss you. Aren't you the best? Is there anything else I can say to you? Uh, uh, Now, statement about Israel. Um, I heard and have been watching, I'm sure you have been too, um, about uh, what happened October 7th, which was horrific, right? And a lot of people said this is the darkest day in Israel's history. And I just want to tell you something, they don't know their Bible. If you say that about Israel, you have no idea what the Bible says about Israel. Um, just a little biblical history, and I'm going to get to our passage here in just a second. So Iran is historic Persia. Persia conquered Israel and inhabited Israel. You have a number of uh, Bible characters that lived under the king of Persia. Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, they're all under Persian rule, okay? It wasn't like they were fighting for their freedom. They were already conquered. Prior to that, they had been conquered by what is present-day Iraq. That was Babylon, And Babylon conquered before them and put them in subjugation to their rule. Prior to that, to the north, where is now Lebanon and Syria, was Assyria who came in in 722 B.C. and conquered Israel, slaughtered everybody. I'm not making light of what happened on October 7th, but I had this idea. Let me throw it at you. I haven't heard anybody on TV say this yet. What if God is disciplining Israel to bring them to their Messiah? Because that's why Persia conquered them and Babylon conquered them and Assyria conquered them because they turned their back on God and therefore he punished them just like he said he would in Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 12. I'm not going to read it to you. He said, if you turn your back on me, I'm going to come after you. I wonder. Just a thought. One other thought about Israel before we leave. Uh, When Israel was established through the man Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God said a very interesting thing. Those who bless you, I will bless. Right? Israel has been our best friend in the global political theater. We have been their best friend as well. I don't think we ought to underestimate maybe why God has favored the United States for favoring his people. Right, So I get all that, and I believe all that. I just wanted to throw those out at you so you could just kind of sift through the noise of what's going on politically um, because Israel's a big deal. Um, There's more to say about that, and 
not now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would turn there, it would be a great thing on our way to, to Hebrews chapter 2, where we will end up and spend most of our time this morning um, as we open the scriptures together. Um, when what is created tries to know and connect with their creator, they try all different kinds of approaches. We call that religion. That which is created pursues God and pursues God in a variety of religious forms and fashions and they create ceremonies and washings and offerings and all kinds of different things uh, to find God. It is an interesting uh, a journey. Man efforts to seek God inevitably turn into man creating a God in the image they think he would be in. And so they create a religion that projects the God that they wish he was. When you open your Bible, you have in it a unique perspective on God and man that you'll find nowhere else. And it is this. It is not man pursuing God, it is God pursuing man. And when you open the pages of Scripture, what you have is a record of God coming after us. Every other religion is us going after Him. Think of it. And so we create religions where man gets the glory because he pursued God. What you have in the Bible is I think we were just singing it. Did I, did I hear that? I, we were just singing, he deserves the glory because he came after us. Isn't that interesting? Now, to me, when I hear that, if that's true, if I open the pages of the Bible, I read it and go, it's accurate. It does two things. It humbles me. To think that God would pursue, you want to make it personal? Would pursue me. Go ahead and make it personal. Let's not just let it be a macro pursuit. Let's let it be a micro pursuit. Did he ever pursue you? Did he ever expose you to himself in a variety? Of, is that not humbling? I can't believe he would do such a thing. I was a beer-drinking, pot-smoking kid in New Haven, Indiana. That's who you go after? More about that later. Anyhow, second, it's enlightening. As we open the pages of the scripture and we find God pursuing man, we learn a lot about him. We learn that he sets the boundaries and he sets the processes to know him. And if we are willing to follow what he has taught us, we can indeed have relationship with him. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are exposed to a scandalous plan that God has. It's ridiculous. If you look at it humanly, and I want to show it to you. Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 1. It's on page 954. If you're not used to your Bible, you want to use the one in the chair. And it says this, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. You guys, what is that? That is man pursuing God. And the Jews are sitting there going, prove to me that you're God. I bet every one of us in the room at some time have done that to the Lord, right? Where we said, I'm not doing it until you give me a sign. Who do we think we are? But the Jews, and in the text it says this, repeatedly, consistently said, we want signs. If God gave them a sign, guess what happened? They want another sign, and another sign, and another sign to prove his validity. The Greeks had a different approach. We're going to find God through pursuing the expansion of our minds. I don't know if they practice yoga or not in Greece. Probably not, but it's a similar concept. And so in verse 22, you have man pursuing God. Now watch verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Here's God's ridiculous plan. And you'll notice in the text that it says, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. The word in the original, it's a scandal. 
In other words, God's plan to pursue them was rejected by them because it didn't fit the kind of sign they wanted. The Greeks considered it what? Foolishness. This isn't wisdom. This is nuts. God doesn't become man, hang on a cross, and die for other people. That doesn't make any sense at all. And so categorically, the Jews are scandalized by the cross. The Jews dismiss it because it's idiocy to them. But verse 24 says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, guess what Christ is, you guys? He's the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. In other words, in God's plan for pursuing us, the ultimate sign of his love is the cross with the Savior on it. The ultimate sign of his wisdom is someone paying the price for our sins. Now, we can egotistically say, that's a terrible plan. That's what the Jews said. I, that, I find that scandalous that you would say God would do such a thing. Certainly, he would do something better than that. And the Greeks go, well, I, you know, I, I've, I've got a logical inference here, and that, you know, A plus B doesn't equal C. So this is idiocy. But if you look at verse 24, it says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It is the scandal of the cross that God has put forward to rescue men from their sins and to pave a way to know him. That's amazing, right? Now, that is a little bit of background. In Hebrews chapter 2, which we are now in, if you want to go to Hebrews chapter 2, it's on page 1001, this is an explanation of, of that scandalous cross. And it gives you reasons and it gives you consequences to the cross. So I'm gonna look at this passage, we're gonna read it together. I'm gonna to talk to you about what the scandal means for Jesus, what the scandal means for us, and are you ready for the third one? What does the scandal mean for Satan himself? Because when God pursues man, the enemy of all that God is, is going to step in the way. There are spiritual forces at work, even as I speak in this room, that will come and snatch his word from your heart and cause you to go, that guy is an idiot. Now, I am an idiot, but that's not what I'm doing right now. It will take the wisdom of the cross and turn it into foolishness It'll take the sign of the cross and turn it into a scandal into your heart. And you will miss the trail of salvation that God has provided. I hope that's not you today. Let's stand. Let's read about it. Hebrews chapter, 12, or chapter 2, 9 through 18. There's so much in here. I have no chance. I told Luke... Uh, Luke set the preaching schedule up. I let him do that. And we were kind of, you know, learning to do stuff. And I said, hey, man, I know I'm supposed to do this in one week. Not going to happen. Going to be two. And then the Lord took one of those weeks away. So now I'm back to one. So my best plan, God said, I don't think so. You're going to do it the way you're supposed to. Here we go. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. The first time Jesus is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. It now defines who he's talking about. That helps us. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to, be, to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust again. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord, and we are tempted to take your place. We are tempted to call your plan foolish. We're tempted to be offended by it. And I pray that you rescue us from those voices. I pray that you would bind and watch over us from the spiritual attacks that come even while I speak and snatch the word out of people's hearts. The person in this room who came genuinely seeking, I pray today they'll leave having found and not be a seeker anymore. Open our hearts to the truth of your gospel today and thank you, Father, for scandalizing us with the gift of your crucified son. You're amazing. We are unworthy, but we are appreciative. Help us to learn more about you today and then walk away fulfilled in all that we know. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Here we go. Ready? What's the scandal mean for Jesus? I'm going to blow through some of these. The reality is I wish I had more time. This is a very rich theological passage, and I'm almost embarrassed at how much time I'm going to give some of this stuff, but read John Piper. He's smarter than me about everything. So you ready? It means that Jesus receives glory and honor. He hung on that cross and scandalized himself. And in verse 9, it says he came for a little while lower than the angels. And he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. In fact, it says he tasted death for everyone. It is an amazing statement, isn't it? And, you know, we were just singing these very words. And the reality, we have to ask ourselves, how could we not give glory and honor to someone who came and died for us? When you understand Christ's sacrifice on the cross, coming to earth in the form of man in order to be scandalized himself on our behalf, how can we not be grateful? How are we not filled with glory and honor? He deserves all of it. Um, Tom read uh, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is with me. Bless his holy name, right? We do that because what? He knows we're but dust, and he doesn't remember our iniquities. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. If I was God, I'd hold me accountable for everything I ever did, and I would be justified in doing so. And yet he passes over sins out of his kindness. Now, you notice the text says he tasted death for everyone. It's a very interesting idea. Let's put it at this way. You guys are, you're Bible people. What are the wages of sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. Every one of us dies because every one of us are very capable sinners. We don't have to be taught how to do that. If we went to the nursery right now and visited there, those little babies are already so selfish. It's unbelievable, right? We come out of the womb really good at loving us. If Jesus came and was a perfect man only, that is, he came and he lived as a human being, he never sinned once, therefore he doesn't have to pay the wages of sin, which is death, very good. The center section is really shining, you get the two sides, come on. But he still died. So he paid the wages of sin even though he never sinned. If he was just a man, he could pick out one person and say, I'm going to die for D. And D would go, yes. And the rest of us would be envious of D. But if he is the eternal son of God, and he still died, he paid an eternal price on our behalf, and he can taste death for, what's the text say? everyone 
He can die for everyone. Then this is a beautiful truth. It means that Jesus receives glory and honor because he laid down the supreme sacrifice, not just for one of us, but for all of us. It's why we gather in one voice and go, he deserves the glory. He does. Number B, it means Jesus' perfection is confirmed. Verse 10 is a very interesting verse, and it deserves way more attention than I'm going to give it. But it says, It was fitting for that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And I have questions about this verse. If Jesus is sinless in perfection, how can he be made perfect? These things trouble me when I'm by myself. Now they can trouble you too. Here's what I think the Bible's saying to us. The perfection that Christ has is perfectly understood because of his suffering. He suffered in such a way to confirm his perfection. Here is our Lord, perfect and sinless, and yet he comes and suffers and does the will of his Father and pays the price for your sin, confirming his perfection. It's an amazing truth. Let me give you a, a little side light. Turn to the right to the book of James, if you just go a few pages. I think it's on page 1011 if you're following that Bible. But just an analogy for you and I as we live our lives. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, James 1. When you meet trials of various kinds for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing guess what you've already been made perfect and complete in Christ suffering confirms your perfection actually suffering makes you like your savior who suffered and was shown to be perfect as well uh, number C, it means that Jesus is the founder of salvation. Again, verse 10, which is an amazing statement, for by whom and through whom all things exist, bringing many sons to glory, that he should be the founder of their salvation. It's also found in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, the old King James called it the author and finisher of our faith, right? The, the word for author is the same word right here, the founder and finisher of our faith. Our Lord Jesus. We look unto him at all times, right? In the trials, as we run the race, we look unto our founder. Well, the concept behind founder is this, that Christ was kind of the pioneer of our faith. He was the trailblazer. He came and he showed us the way. Remember in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and... He is the direction that we should pursue. So when it says he's the founder of our faith, he's the pioneer who takes us in a direction. And by following him, we have hope, we have help, we have purpose. Maybe I could translate it this way. He is our divine hero that we look toward for direction and purpose. So when the Bible says that he's the founder of our faith, he is the one who made faith what it is. Um, several years ago, I brilliantly uh, decided it would be a cool thing to go backpacking with the youth group in Wyoming. And I, I uh, would never try that today, but I did then. Uh, I was younger, more foolish uh, I wanted a shower so bad. I took a bath in a snow-melted lake. It was one of the most freezing experiences of my existence. Anyhow, and so we're all following this guy who's got the little gizmo that tells us where the trail is. His name is John Hewson. Is John in the room? Okay, you guys look John up and ask him about this story. So he's got the little gizmo and we're following him and all of a sudden John stops. We're in the middle of nothing. This is this giant field in Wyoming. And he has a very concerned look on his face. And we finally go, what's the matter, John? He says, the thing says we're in the middle of a lake. <laughs> I don't think we are, John. I'm not positive. Pretty solid decision making that this grass I'm standing in is not water. 
So then it had to recalibrate the gizmo to find out the path to go to the right direction, get to the top of Medicine Bow Peak, and say that we were there for five minutes and then come back down, which is why we went to Wyoming in the first place. Maybe we should have just had pictures of it and said lovely photographs or something. I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow, that is our Lord leading us in the way of salvation. And guess what? He never leads you into a lake He takes you on the path you need to follow. He is the pioneer of your faith. He is the one that you can look to. He is the founder of salvation for everyone who believes. It's an amazing statement. Uh, Letter D. It means that Jesus is the victor over his enemy, verses 14 and 15. I'm gonna come back and fill some of those blanks in in a little bit. Verse 14, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same, that through death, that is the foolishness of the cross, that is the scandalousness of uh, his sacrifice, he might destroy the one who has the power of the death that is the devil. Christ came and unleashed the power of life over death. Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and he holds that power over humanity, causing us to be slaves to him. Look at the very next verse, verse 15, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, not daily slavery. This is forever slavery that Satan puts us under through the fear of death, and I'm gonna come back to that in a minute too. But Christ came into the domain of darkness, the perfect son of God, and that is humanity on earth, and he suffers the consequences of being in darkness. He's put to death. That death becomes the door to defeat the enemy of God and all that is good. It doesn't make sense, does it? But it does three days later when Sunday shows up and the tomb is empty. It makes sense when he conquers death on our behalf and we go, we got it. Every other Messiah's tomb still has a body in it. I've told the story many times. Forgive me for repeating myself. I only have one life and only a handful of stories. So I was in Peking, uh, Beijing, China, uh, 1980. We're in uh, Tiananmen Square. In the middle of that square is Chairman Mao's mausoleum. And, you, and uh, for whatever reason, the Chinese parade by and look at him and he's like vacuum packed and formaldehyde and he's there and there he is and you walk past him and there he is and you wave to him. He never waves back, but you can wave to him. And, and then uh, there's these giant Chinese letters over Mao's body and a guy in our said, hey, what's that say on the wall? Asked our guy and he goes, it says, Chairman Mao reigns immortal. Have you looked underneath the letters? He's laying in the box. <laughs> Christ's tomb's empty. You can't parade by it and see his body because he conquered death, you guys. He, he defeated the one who has the power of death, who is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He is the one who destroys all that he is, and you'll notice he delivers those who are enslaved to them. And I'm gonna get more of that in just a second too. It's amazing, isn't it? All of a sudden, God's scandalous, silly plan starts to make a little more sense. And it causes you to go, maybe I'll just follow what God says instead of creating my own religion and my own way out that depends on me Perhaps I should just by faith believe in this Jesus who conquered death on my behalf and rendered um, weakness and defeat to the arch enemy of my life. What about that? Uh, Letter E. It means that Jesus is shown to be merciful, to be merciful and faithful, which is in verse 18 or 17, excuse me, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It is an amazing statement about the humanity of Christ. 
Jesus wasn't partially human. He was made human in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. We'll get to that in a second too. Point being here, Christ comes and dies and shows mercy and faithfulness to humanity. He was made just like us in every way and then overwhelmed the humanity that he had with divinity and all of a sudden makes a path for us to follow. Says, hey, you guys, afraid of death, follow me. And you follow him and you follow him, guess where? To eternal life. Now, the whole high priest thing is going to be in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews. I'm not going to spend another moment on that because you're going to be tired of hearing about Jesus as a high priest before this is all over. But it is an amazing statement to the Jewish people that they would have a high priest at the right hand of the Father who is faithful and merciful and cares more about them than he cares about himself. And that's not a small thing. Now, um, what does this mean to for us. First, it means we get to experience a bunch of things. It means you get to taste things. It means, you guys, that you're not going to be uh, sitting in the bleachers watching. You'll actually be participating. You ready? And here's the first thing. You get to experience um, God's grace. You go back to verse 9. And he says he's made a little lower than the angels. And he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. And when he suffered his death, so that the grace of God, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Um, uh, D. James Kennedy back in the 70s uh, penned a little acrostic for grace. You probably know it, but let me repeat it to you. It says this, God's riches at Christ's expense. I can't improve upon it. Can I just quote it even though it's old? Why would I even try to be more clever than that? That is brilliant. This is what God's grace is. It's God's riches for us at Christ's expense. It is Christ hanging on the cross in order that we might have God's grace. Unbelievable. Again, that scandalous, silly plan of God starting to look pretty good, isn't it? Um, second, um, I gotta find, here it is. It means that we experience God's glory. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. There is, again, Jesus, your pioneer, leading you through the wilderness of this earth to the glory of God. And you get to taste that glory. You get to participate in that glory. You get to live in eternity in that glory because of Christ. It's starting to look like we should ask ourselves a question. How could we reject this? The scandalous plan of God. How can we reject that? So he brings us from being an enemy certain of judgment to the glory of God. I referenced earlier my little story of my life. Uh, I was kind of a beer-drinking, pot-smoking guy. And uh, my father died when I was a freshman in high school, and it was just me and my mom. And my mom and I then, you know, hung out together. She got remarried a few years later. And uh, I was not a very good son. I was worried about me. I uh, frequently stayed out all night, never came home. Young people, believe it, we didn't have cell phones. Um, we actually, at my house, had a thing called a party line. It's in the Smithsonian Institute. It's this amazing thing. And the old folks laughed because they remember party lines. And we had like six neighbors had one phone line. You picked your neighbors. You could listen to your neighbors talking to their kids. Anyhow, it wasn't like I could call home. It wasn't going to happen. And um, my mom uh, watched her son deteriorating in a really bad way. It was really hard on her, but I didn't care. I was about me. Um, 
not long ago, a person came to me and they said, oh, I went to this fundraiser. It, it, was, it was called a sip and smoke. And I go, what's a sip and smoke? And they said, oh, you, you drink wine and you smoke cigars and you give money to breast cancer. I said, oh, that's interesting. We had those in New Haven. We called it beers and bongs. <laughs> Some of you are from the 70s. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? That one landed both hours. That was a good one both hours. And my mom watched me live that life. And then I gave my life to Christ. And you know what happened? I stopped staying out all night, and I got up and went to church on Sunday morning. It was freaking my poor mother out. What happened to my kid? I don't even care what it is. I want it too. And my mom gave her life to Christ. And my algebra teacher who kicked me out of algebra, he invited me to have another study hall is what he did. He said, I don't think algebra three and four is for you. And I said, you got that right. And he said, how about you go take another study hall because you're a horrible human being. I said, thank you, I need more rest. So I would go and sleep in study hall. And my algebra teacher heard about my life and gave his life to Christ. And I didn't do anything. You guys, I did nothing. But Jesus led me to experience the glory of God, which then takes me to the next one. We get to experience his character. And so instead of staying out all night partying and passing out, which was a a very normal habit, all of a sudden you start pursuing righteousness and all the people around you going, what's going on? You're a weirdo. Thank you for noticing. You didn't think I was weird when I was passed out in my own vomit? I wasn't weird then? No, that's normal. Yikes. That's how twisted our enemy is. It's how warped our culture is. And it was just as normal as could be for me. So this salvation, I want you to watch this in verse 11. So he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And so what happens in Christ is he takes beer drinking pot smoking teenage kids and he turns them into his holy soldiers and fills them with righteousness instead. And all the people around go, dude, what happened to you? And you go, I don't know. I believed in this thing, and God shed his sanctifying work in my heart. Now, I want you to notice something in the passage. He he sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. The word all is gigantic. It includes all. I know that's very clever, right? I want you to think about that for a moment. When it comes to the saving knowledge of Christ, it does not matter how much money you have. He does not have room for rich people and not for poor people. It does not matter which gender you are, male or female. It does not matter how much education you have. It does not matter what color your skin is. It does not, we're all in this together. There's no distinction. The reason there's no distinction, we're all really good at sinning. That's what Romans 3.20, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. You all know that verse? You know what the next phrase says? And there is no distinction among men. Exactly. We're all equally sinful. We all equally need a Savior, and Jesus came to hang on a cross, so no matter who you are and what your circumstances are, you can know righteousness even if you're evil. No. Who knew? I think God's pretty smart with this cross thing. Maybe it's not scandalous. And so we are united together And then we have this next experience where we not only have God's character, we experience God's relationship. That is why, the end of verse 11, he's not ashamed to call you what? Brothers. In verse 12, I I tell you the name, my brothers. Verse 13, behold, I and the children God have given. We go from aliens to family. 
And we are related to our Creator in a way we've never been before. Not because of the work we have done, right? Not because we made up a religion of our effort, but because Christ came and died for us and says, follow me. Follow me. And you go, where am I going? Doesn't matter. Follow me. And you begin to follow him and he leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And you have a new delight in your life. And everything changes, you guys. Man, sounds like the cross is pretty cool. Um, you ready for the next one? Now, here's where uh, the next one is we experience God's freedom. How am I doing on time? Eh, I'm a minute ahead of where I was last time. I told Luke, I said, Luke, uh, I know you told me my schedule, but I'm taking two weeks for this one. And the reason I wanted to do that was this point right here. Because I am convinced that our culture peddles fear at a place where it paralyzes the people in the culture, where we stop living because we are afraid. Every pharmacy commercial wants you to take their pill so that you can live longer or be less itchy or whatever the pill's for along the way. And then they have that fast talker at the end that tells you all the potential side effects. And you're like, I'll just scratch. Thank you. It's okay. I'm good with the scratch. But I want you to notice in verse 14 and 15 that that peddling of fear has a demonic foundation. So the power of death, it is the devil in 14, delivers all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And you guys, I just wanted to spend a whole Sunday thinking with you out loud about how not to let fear determine how you live your life. God's not going to allow me to do that. Maybe another day, but this, I was gonna, that would have been this morning and the whole surgery thing kind of messed that up. But regardless... Let me at least say it in micro. I can't say it in macro. Satan has created a world environment that manipulates the people by fear of death. And out of fear of death, people will do all kinds of silly things. And what happens here, it says, that is a lifelong slavery that all of us are prone to unless we what? follow our pioneer because where does our hero take us you guys to life our hero says come follow me to eternal life a couple of thoughts first we don't have time to turn i'll just give you the passages first corinthians fifteen twenty six says that death is our enemy 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says our enemy has been defeated. Where's your sting, O death? It's like the Bible's trash talk in death. I love it. I read it at funerals all the time. Watch God trash talk death. Where's your sting? Hey, well, what are you doing? You can't do it. And it's just a beautiful thing. In Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, Paul says, well, I'm convinced of this that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So if I'm lined up behind my hero, following him wherever he takes me, I don't have to be afraid of death anymore. You know why you don't have to be afraid of death? You ready? Because you can't die. What? Remember Jesus in John 11? I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will never die. 
So when Satan tempts you to tremble in fear over death, I'm begging you to auger down into your faith and follow your hero instead of this phony one and say, I know I'm going to live even if I die. It's going to be okay. Now listen, um, it's been quite a week, to be honest with you. On, on, on one day, uh, last Sunday, um, my son had major surgery. I found out a friend of ours had cancer, stage four cancer. Uh, I found out a friend of ours' mother passed away, and we had a baby born. That was one day. What's going on? Can you all stop getting sick? I'm sorry. You go ahead and get sick. We'll love on you. Um, and it's overwhelming sometimes. Just the pain in the room, you guys, is so hard to manage. And I, I hate failing you sometimes. I feel like such a failure on your behalf that I'm not always there. I can't be there. It's impossible. But the manipulation that causes you to be afraid of death is shouldn't be there. And so I'm sitting with the person who's having cancer and they're saying, well, I think I'm gonna go through the chemo. It's stage four, but I'm gonna go through the chemo. We're gonna fight this thing. I said, I think you should fight this thing. Do you know why we fight death? It's our enemy. We don't fight death because we're afraid of dying. We fight death to celebrate the life that God gave us. And so yes, you fight death. You should, it's your enemy. But not for the reasons everyone else fights death. Everyone else trembles with fear because we, we're not going to die. It's gonna, you're going to be okay. But we fight death to celebrate the life gave us, that God gave us. He is the author of life. Satan is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So we're going to stand up to him. The, I, I wrote in my notes, he is a toothless lion who still roars. We're freedom of fear. I got to move on. Freedom from temptation. So now I'm not afraid of dying, but now I'm living. How do I live my life? In holiness and righteousness. Well, you're going to be tempted to do some non-holy righteous things. And you'll notice in verse 17 and 18 that our faithful high priest has come to help us. Verse 18, he himself suffered when tempted, is able to help those who are being tempted. He's going to show you the way out, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No one is taken away by temptation, but is common to man. But God will with that temptation, what? Make a way to escape. What's the way to escape? Follow your hero. Find Christ in the middle of your temptation. He shows you not only how to die, but you don't. He shows you how to live. It's beautiful. And we are now free, you guys. We're free. The last one deserves an entire sermon by itself. And since I'm already over, I'm going to just be able, and it breaks my heart to give so little. But we experience God's favor. It says in verse 16, that God made, through Christ, made propitiation for the sins of the people. I don't use the word propitiation very often. I don't know if you ever propitiated anything in your life. It's not the word I use. It's got a lot of syllables uh, and, and can be confusing. But really, what it means is this. It certifies us as being okay. Christ comes. He takes away our sins and replaces them with divine favor. So when God looks at us, we are no longer subjected to wrath because he looks at us and sees our sins. God looks at us and he sees our Savior. And when he sees our Savior, he goes, not guilty. We go, are you sure? I sure feel guilty. Did you see me during my teen years? Yeah, saw you. You were a putz. That's what he says. When we had a conversation. And yet, he looks down at all of us and he says, I'm going to, instead of judge you, I'm going to affirm, I'm going to affirm your righteousness. The word actually became uh, synonymous with the mercy seat in the temple. 
you are covered by the mercy of God through your Savior, and he propitiates your life. He takes that which is away and replaces it with the favor of God. Yes, this is pretty good. Boy, that cross isn't looking so scandalous and silly now, is it? This is the hope of salvation for anyone who would believe. What's God's scandal mean for Satan? I've already alluded to it. I don't have time to expound it. It means his power is defeated. He is a toothless lion who can roar. He can bludgeon us with fear, but he cannot deliver on his threats. Have you thought about that? He can frighten you, he cannot kill you. Which should mean he cannot frighten you. It also means that his people are delivered. That there are those who are lifelong slaves of fear are no longer that. They have been set free. Our slave owner no longer owns us. We owe him nothing because we have a new hero and we follow our new hero and our hero leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Our hero leads us through the shadow of the valley of death, doesn't he? And we will fear no evil when we're in that shadow because we're following our hero. And the one who controls the valley of the shadow of death, we can look at with a smile on our face and say, you're a loser. (laughs) Your responsibility in all of this is to stop believing in yourself and start following Jesus. If he is indeed the pioneer, the trailblazer of faith, are you following him? Or are you still trying to create your own religion by your own good works? And I ask you today, who is your spiritual hero? Would you believe in Jesus Christ today, having heard the evidence of God pursuing you through his cross? I hope you will. Let's pray. Now listen, as you get alone with the Lord in your own thoughts, um, here's your chance to respond. Not because a guy up here was really eloquent, he wasn't, but because the message is so powerful and so filled with hope and so life-changing, you don't want to miss it. I beg you to look in your own heart right now and say, who am I following? Christ, I want it to be you. I give you my life today. I receive the propitiation for my sins. And I want to enjoy God's favor. Pray that prayer. Become new in him. Father, rescue sinners from the error of their ways. And help them, help them, Father, to see the truth of your word today. Scandalous and foolish as it may seem. Change lives for your namesake. In Christ's name.